We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, Tuesday, August 24th, 2021, as we do in uh, the third hour every Tuesday. We welcome the Hallmans, Lewis and Hugh. Hugh is the former mayor of Tempe, an attorney and educator. Lewis is the managing director of Insight Analytics. Both of them I would like to thank in person for taking the helm of this show exactly a week ago. Do you like being on that side or this side better? I enjoyed being on this side. I put Lewis on that side. But I mean, do you rather be a guest or a host? It is a lot easier to be a guest. Is it? Yes. The work that one has to do to be a host, as Lewis learned. I I gained a considerable amount of respect for you last week, Seth. It is exhausting. I don't know how you do it. It's very challenging. Sweet of you. Um, What if we were to take some calls on Afghanistan with you, gentlemen, and then we'll go into a little bit of what we know about COVID. And we have learned a lot in the last week, I think, a lot. I don't think uh, the administration will be happy with what we've learned, but we learned it from them. Dana and Chandler, you are on with me and Hugh and Lewis. Wow. This is very exciting. Yeah, it takes three Um, of us to deal with you. Yeah, right? Oh, my God. You have no idea how true that is, Seth. Um, <laughs> my husband can test <laughs> Four of um, us. Okay. He's texting us now. Yeah. So, in the beginning, you were talking to Tevi Troy, and you were talking about the group thing, and that they know what he thinks, and they know that would, he would disagree with or make him angry. And I want to take that on a different level into a different place, and that is, how do we deal with Alzheimer's patients, because they live in an alternate reality, right? And you can't convince them because their brain doesn't work that it isn't the reality that they think. So many times they will ask for a dead relative that's been gone a long, long time that they should know is gone. Or, you know, where is or they'll mistake from? someone, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. You're not supposed to argue with them because it gets them angry and they can't comprehend what you're telling them. I understand anyway. your, and yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you see where I'm going yes, with this? Yes, sure. This is, if this isn't a testament to him being an Alzheimer's patient and just how bad he must be, that they can't risk making him the slightest bit angry because this man has his hands on the nuclear codes. Well, I'll tell you what's curious to me, Dana. Alzheimer's patient angry. Yeah, no, I'll tell you what's curious to me, and I'd love the Holman's uh, responses as well. What's curious to me is you used to see Jill Biden, Jill, Dr. Jill, uh, the first lady around the president a lot. You would think she would take responsibility for whatever, whatever, whatever deficits her husband's had. In a Mrs. Wilsonian. In a uh, Mrs. Wilsonian way. Exactly right. Exactly. Good, good comparison. And they had the decency, at least as someone said to me the other day, to hide it from the American people. I don't know if that's a better solution or not. It is a little embarrassing watching this commander in chief muddle his way through these, uh, these, these statements. But um, yeah, I, I, look, I, 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 I don't, I can't diagnose the president. I just know something's very, very wrong. I don't know if you two have a response. So one of the things that that kind of struck me as we were watching the the pullout from Afghanistan and, and the reaction from this is that we kind of see the establishment split into 
two camps over this, you know, and, and I think that Biden really had very little control and an oversight over the withdrawal generally. And so I've been trying to figure out why, you know, why this was allowed to happen in some sense, how we were able to lose not only our own military equipment, but that of the 300,000 man strong army that we trained and equipped. And one of the conclusions I've come to is that Afghanistan shares a 50 mile long border with China, specifically the Xinjiang province of China. I'm going to do a spoiler alert here. Lewis has a theory that ain't bad. It, it is, Dana, you'll uh, I apologize that we're going so far off afield from the original question, but Lewis's theory ain't bad, and, and it is a response to say it wasn't an unintended consequence. What you're seeing was it absolutely intended. Lou. Right. So the, uh, put on your, your tinfoil hats a little bit, but my hypothesis is basically this. We basically allowed the Taliban to overrun Afghanistan and seize a in nation a st- in a week and seize a nation state's worth of arms. The Taliban one of the best best militarized, best uh, equipped nation states. Right. One of the one of the uh, interesting things about the Taliban is they are violent extremist Islamists and they are of the Sunni persuasion. Now, interestingly, the Uyghur Muslims currently uh, uh, being subject to genocide by China in the Xinjiang province, which again shares a border with Afghanistan. Now, there are 13, 12 million Sunni Muslim Uyghurs in that area. It is very possible, if not likely, that the Taliban... I'll go to likely, but go ahead. ...that the, the Taliban might then set up effectively an arms corridor to begin supplying... Uh, uh, weapons and munitions to the Uyghurs in China. And this would be exactly the kind of proxy war that our uh, military intelligence would not mind setting up, particularly if they don't care if our president has egg on his face. Or doesn't know what's happening. So, Dana, I will pick up your specific comment, and then I'm going to come back to Lewis's theory. Uh, your specific comment is, isn't this really proof uh, that the presidents, uh, Winken, Blinken, and Nod, are unwilling to arouse the commander-in-chief from his stupor because they're afraid they'll uh, get uh, an angry Alzheimer's patient even angrier? Winken, Blinken, and Nod is a reference, of course, to Anthony Blinken. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, Jake Sullivan is That's correct, Lincoln, and Nod is, and is the Nod president. Is the president. <laughs> Exactly. How do you like that? I, oh, no. I was listening to your last hour, and I thought it's, it's, a, it's uh, a joke in Washington. Exactly I mean, this is right. what they call the administration yes. in Washington. And you know? so, at this stage, uh, the real question isn't uh, that it was uh, the, the president. They didn't want to uh, alert him to different information because of what he believed. I actually think it's because of what he wanted to believe. Having set yeah. the date at September 11th for the withdrawal, he did not want to change his mind and does not want to be disabused of the bad information he's got. So it's not that he believed it. It's that he he wants to believe it so desperately. That is uh, consistent with not that he's necessarily an Alzheimer's patient, but the fact that uh, Joe Biden ultimately isn't particularly greatly talented. He's been a very able politician, but unlike a Bill Clinton with some real intellect, it's not clear that Joe Biden ever shared that level of intellect. And so his capacity has been to be a very successful, glad-handing politician now that he's actually 
front and center force to make policy. This is a guy who wants to cling to views that he hopes to have, notwithstanding the real information. Back to Lewis's theory. It ain't bad. I think that's a fascinating uh, theory, Lou, and you ought to be flushing it out in terms of the proxy wars that our CIA likes to pose against our traditional militarists. Right. So you might also then, as further evidence of this, um, you might look at our, our engagement in Syria over the past five years. And uh, I, I've read some interesting analyses that have basically described it as uh, Pentagon-backed militants against CIA-backed militants, that we are funding both sides in that conflict zone because we want a state of paralysis there. Or chaos. And that is ultimately what we've now seeded in Afghanistan, whether it was intentional or not. I think Lewis is pointing out to something that an unintended consequence for for the president uh, is, but an intended consequence for CIA folks, for example, would be that we can now see Uyghurs get fully uh, militarized and cause the Chinese lots and lots of trouble. Uh, One of the... um Sorry, this makes me uh, kind of bring something to my mind where the the kinds of problems and and impulses that the U.S. had 20 years ago when we invaded Afghanistan are actually very different from the kinds of strategic constraints we have now. The biggest one in my mind is our former dependence on Middle East oil. Mm-hmm. Back when we invaded, we, were, we, we had a very large dependency which required us to keep um, – carrier battle groups in the Persian Gulf. Conference after conference and after conference I went global. to about becoming energy dependent. Right. Absolutely. But one of the things that happened during the forever wars was the shale revolution, right. which then has left us at a point where we are now net energy exporters. And consequently, we've moved our military assets out of the Persian Gulf because the stability of that region no longer matters for our economy. So that give, that moves our incentives from being one where the U.S. needs to hold up the global order or it itself loses economically to a scenario in which the U.S. can now, because it is sheltered from the order, it can turn over the table, upsetting its rivals and and competitors, but without damaging itself. So this turns the U.S. into a, a place where geostrategically, it's almost in a position to act like a Russia or an Iran did 20 years ago. Well, in fact, the, the ocean moats now are serving us well, and your point being taken that being energy independent has made the United States economy much more independent of the rest of the world. Turning over that table, creating chaos elsewhere, has done something very important to for us, and that is massive capital flight into the United States, which has kept our interest rates low, stabilized our economy, while other nations are having greater struggle with that. Absolutely. So do you see in your scenario, do you see uh, some kind of war, war of attrition between Afghanistan and China, theoretically? Uh, I see something that looks a lot like the Soviet occupation in the 80s. Um, lots of, of asymmetric, low-grade conflict. Now, the Chinese are aggressive enough that they might respond with a full-blown invasion and retaliation. Yeah, let me talk about that with you when we come back. Korea. Because you make me think of something. Let me take another call and, and remind me to return to that very, very important issue. I was just thinking in my own head, China and the Taliban at war reminds me of what Henry Kissinger said when he heard that Iraq invaded Iran. I hope they both lose. We'll be right back. And they did. Good, good, good. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Hugh and Lewis Hallman are my guests. 602-508-0960 is the number if you'd like to join us. Paul is in Mesa. Hello, Paul. 
Hey, Steph, just a couple of things, uh, three things, actually. One is you were searching for a word to describe, and the word that came to me that you don't have to worry about the other words is barbarism or barbaric. Barbarism That's or barbaric. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, my feeling is this. The only way we could possibly avoid mass murders, rapes, and this barbaric torture is for us to reinvade Kabul and take by force. That's the only way this will be avoided. Well, okay. I I appreciate that, Paul, and that certainly has been on the mind of a lot of people, but here's my wholesale concern and I want to throw this to you guys based on what you were saying about China and Afghanistan, Lewis. It's actually a, a nice springboard for that point. If we were to go in, you know, I don't know if we were to go back in. I don't know what would be different necessarily, to be honest with you, because China has, I think, something that we don't have. and No concern for human life. Well, they know how to fight a war to victory. And my first concern, I'm, people are tired of hearing me saying it, but I think I was born out to be right here, bared out to be right, um, was really, I remember the first week after 9-11, I was thinking, does this country still have what it takes internally to fight the kind of war it needs to fight to have the kind of victory we need to have, which we haven't done since World War II, and I don't think we do. So, And me, I think China does. Let me let me actually um, kind of respond to Paul. Actually, I think Paul is correct We'd in his say assessment. Sh- in other words, we say shock and awe, but we don't do shock and awe. Well, so so I, I think Paul is right that if if one wanted to stop what we're seeing in the streets of Kabul, right? If we wanted to go there, the only option that we would have would be to deploy soldiers and physically go there and stop it. Now, that is true, but does that mean that we should do that? Mm. Those are two separate yeah, questions yeah, in my yeah, mind. Yeah. And and I'm going to add one more. And it is what resulted after 20 years. What is the opportunity to develop the end game? What is the end game? Right. My view of the end game was that we'd created a stabilized lack of peace. We had an, uh, an organizational structure that kept the fight there. If these folks want to brutalize one another, we kept the lid on mostly, but it kept them there. Without our presence there, uh, the kinds of jihadists can now make their way around the world and taking the uh, very well-equipped military, the great stash of arms we left there, they can now use that. Or sell it. Or sell it, do that around the world. So the end game, contrary to President Biden and even contrary to President Trump, was having a small presence there continuously kept the fight there. And it was never going to become a stable democracy. I think anybody who thought that we could transport democracy or create some uh, create some sort of U.S. light model there didn't understand, doesn't understand the cultural constraints that exist in Afghanistan and what's there. In contrast, uh, I've spent now 30 years in Kazakhstan. Yeah, what's the di- yeah? Talk to uh, me about uh, that. You know, it's another stand. Well, what's the difference among the stands? In this instance, you have a mountain people uh, in Afghanistan that are. Fighting on a daily basis to have a subsistence level of of survival in Kazakhstan over 2000 years, you had a people that had created a very carefully orchestrated, very carefully governed um, country in which it's all flatlands. You've got people traveling around the entire country uh, with their herds and their sheep and their families moving from one place to another in a very carefully orchestrated pattern that required governance. 
and and a people that were in doing all of that taking care of themselves. So you have the kind of seedlings that created this country as well. The thing that, that's really important here is, again, the difference in these geographies. Afghanistan has, is again- and the resulting culture. Uh, it's a mainly mountainous country, and that makes it very difficult for you to kind, create the kind of high-trust societies that democracies really need in order to thrive. So with with mountains, right, you can't have the kind of large-scale cities that you have that engender this kind of high social organization, high levels of collaboration. You can't build infrastructure and trade. Road building in mountains costs about 25 times more as over flatlands. And so because of all of these factors built up over thousands of years, you have two very different cultures, one of which is naturally more collaborative and ordered and lends itself much more effectively, again, to the high-trust kind of society that we need for democracy. Now, to your point, Seth, though, about does America have the ability to fight and win wars anymore? The problem is, I think, Seth, is that America has not fought an existential war since, I think, 1865. Mm -hmm. Now, we can talk about whether the first two, the, the first two world wars were, were just wars or, or, or what was different about them than some of the other wars we fought over the 20th century. But that is, I, I think, a key piece of this is motivation. Because, you know, when you talk about Vietnam and Afghanistan, the reason that those sides won is not because they were better trained or better led. They were willing to endure horrific casualties because they were fighting in their eyes for their homes and their people, whereas we were fighting to police police the, someone yes and that's the that's the point is the end game that's we've got to point. we've got to stop putting into these places the idea that we're going to create a stable democracy like the united states it is a rare victory that you end up with the results that we ended up with japan that that kazakhstan created on its own but russia still hasn't achieved that right. and that's a society that was closer to europe it is not european however the ukraine that's a great point when we talk of the west we don't really include russia and you shouldn't right russia doesn't include itself right. when, yeah. when if you ask a russian are they european or asian they will say neither we're russian right. yes and right. so the point is in all of these actions where we talk about that we failed or that we lost the answer is we were there policing the situation and anybody who thought we could achieve a greater result in in our lifetimes, in anybody's lifetime, I think are foolhardy. But the Especially police, when you have more criminals than police. And the policing action, however, I would argue that we were had achieved in Afghanistan was successful up until the moment that Donald Trump said we're going to withdraw. Because as we drew down forces, uh, we ended up with two, three, four thousand over the, it really started 10,000 in 2017. And we're down to 2,500 troops here in this last year. And things were still stable. Right. Young women were still going to school. Right. People were living their lives successfully in most parts of the country. And now we have the potential that many of those people are now going to, going to experience, and I quote, floggings, stonings, and amputations, unquote, as many of the kinds of uh, punishments that will be meted out to people who are on the wrong side. Well, I think we were having quite the success and now have turned that success into great failure because we moved the goalposts. We thought it was more than a policing action, that we were somehow going to create a stable democracy in that area without spending the kinds of resources it would take to create, as Lewis noted, the infrastructure, the capital, and the uh, philosophy and the culture that would support it. I would say an another thing that's very different, um, well, maybe after the break, but that's very different is that 
is that exogenous, is endogenous desire to want to change. When you went to Kazakhstan, there were people who had pictures of Abraham Lincoln in their homes. I doubt many Afghanis had pictures of Abraham Lincoln in their homes in 2001. Or pictures. Or pictures. Art was banned. Art was banned. I'm Seth Leibson. They're the home in 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Take one more call on Afghanistan, then I want to do some uh, stats on... Uh, we got to do COVID. That's our stock and trade. through COVID. Yeah. But first, Rick in Paradise Valley. Hello, Rick. Yeah, hi. I really enjoy your show. Thank I'll you. be real quick. Okay. Uh, something that I've become aware of in the last several days, and I have not heard one word about it, the commanding general of all forces and U.S. forces in Afghanistan was Scott Miller, four-star Army general, and he'd been there since 2018. He relinquished. He was scheduled, by the way, to retire later this year. Stellar record from everything I can tell. Anyway, he relinquished command uh, in, I believe, around July 13th. Struck me that strange uh, that someone who has the probably greatest knowledge of everything going on of that nature in Afghanistan leaves right before a month and a half before the whole group is to come out. Uh, CENTCOM commander, a Marine four-star named McKenzie, has assumed that command in addition to his own duties uh, as the CENTCOM commander. Not heard a word about it. That's interesting. Maybe a very good reason for it. It just strikes me as really, really uh, unusual. And I'd uh, wonder if you'd heard anything about it or if any of your listeners have. And... uh, that's that's my question. I don't think the date was actually uh, at all surprising because it was the president on July 8th who said, quote, the Taliban is not the North Vietnamese army. They're not remotely comparable in terms of cap- uh, capability. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the f- the roof of the embassy of the United States from Afghanistan, period, unquote. That was July 8th. And you have to believe that somebody who'd been in charge and had done a remarkable job keeping the lid on a very unstable place. And again, keeping the fight there, keeping it very well maintained, keeping it relatively calm, very limited loss of life on the U.S. side. Uh, Lewis uh, points out to me on regular occasion, of course, more contractors were killed in Afghanistan than U.S. servicemen and women. But the point is that in that uh, 20 years of occupancy, uh, occupation, and let's just call it that, police action, uh, there was at the end of the day in the last three or four years, in part because of uh, Miller's ability, a very calm situation. It is not surprising to me that that's when he relinquished command because the president had made the decision to go the direction he had decided to go. Thanks. Uh, thanks for that, Hugh. Uh, Lewis and Hugh, let's let's talk a little bit about this new phrase, neologism, that is new to most Americans, breakthrough. Breakthrough cases, breakthrough infections. What do we need to know? So a breakthrough case is effectively a COVID-19 case uh, that occurs with a vaccinated person. So it's when you've been vaccinated and you get COVID, despite having been vaccinated. So why is this an issue? Well, it's an issue for a bunch of reasons. The One of the largest is that we have been sold a narrative over the past 
eight months or so that vaccines are what we need to do to end the pandemic and return to our normal state of civil liberties. And the results now are indicating that this is nonsense because as we get breakthrough cases and as vaccines are revealed to be not the the cure-all that we thought that they were. The permanent cure-all. Right. Now our, our state, emboldened as it is by the last, you know, 16 months of powers it has accrued to itself uh, is now unwilling to relinquish its its control and will just use this as an excuse to extend what I keep calling the permanent emergency. Well, and I would add that I think uh, Lewis has properly pointed out that the current uh, political leadership class and its corporate press seem only able to fathom and consider one facet of the problem at a time, that they are uh, algebra thinkers in a calculus world, and so that they do not have the ability simultaneously to understand that from the beginning it seemed pretty clear that any vaccine that was developed could not be a permanent result. This is a disease, a virus, that has very similar ac- action that ultimately we see in flu. So we get an annual flu shot if you want to get a flu shot and avoid the flu. And we also recognize that the flu vaccines are not 100%, that every year they have to be tweaked because the flu viruses continue to mutate and we end up with different variants. Surprise, surprise. We're used to that. Why is it so difficult for the CDC and other leaders in the healthcare industry these days to understand that we're smart enough to understand that a vaccine could help reduce our bad outcomes. It could help prevent us from getting the disease in the first instance. But over time, we likely would need to get a booster shot. Certainly, the Israelis figured that out a month and a half ago. And it is what I'm most struck by is that this administration is going to look so foolish for refusing to consider that earlier on because they could not give up that everybody first had to be vaccinated. Those who were willing to get vaccinated now might want to get a booster shot. And I wish they'd open up the opportunity for people who choose to do so in a liberty-seeking society to allow people to make those kinds of decisions. Can I pick up on that on the other side? We'll do so. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It's that time of year where the sun is scorching and our unpredictable monsoon season is back. And that means it's time to talk about your roof, which means it's time to talk about Trades Unlimited for all your roofing needs. It's the company I use. I've used them. Totally honest uh, people that will blow you away with their customer service. I have been to their warehouse. They have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They are great people. So if you're looking for an inspection, a repair, or a new roof, I want you to Call Trades Unlimited. Give them a call at 480-483-1775. That's 480-483-1775. Or visit them online at tradesunlimited.com. That's tradesunlimited.com. Hugh Hallman, Lewis Hallman, we were talking about breakthrough cases. You had mentioned Israel in passing, Hugh. We get a lot of data out of Israel. It turns out one of the things interesting about Israel is it's probably the most probably the most vaccinated country in the world and a new interesting report came out today uh despite bill do you have a Joe Biden audio we spoke about earlier just listen to Joe Biden from three weeks ago this is three weeks the ago various shots that people are getting now cover that they're, they're you're okay you're not going to you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Okay, that was three weeks ago. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Guess what? And he's an idiot. 60% of Israelis with COVID in the hospital, 59% of Israelis with COVID 
in the hospital have been fully vaccinated. The numbers are not quite so clear, but they are very high. So uh, you properly noted that Israel is the most vaccinated country uh, on the planet, and they are seeing a spike in COVID cases driven by the Delta variant. No, it's not because the Delta variant is particularly different from the others. It is because the vaccines are losing their efficacy. The Israelis started to study months ago and by mid-July had concluded that the vaccines that had been administered were losing their efficacy to the point of being approximately 34 percent as efficacious as they had been when originally administered after six months. And so the Israelis immediately launched a uh, a program to provide booster shots, and they are now the most booster-shotted country on the planet. And the amazing thing is that we've had such a muddle of the mess here in this country, uh, in part because the only uh, facet that the administration wants to talk about is that you've got to get vaccinated, and you must get vaccinated, and you should just turn the president. If you get vaccinated, you won't get COVID. It's nonsense. We have to understand that the vaccines that are being administered are not permanent. They do lose their strength over time, just as one sees in the flu vaccine. And we have to get booster shotted, highly likely. About four weeks ago, just to kind of present the local side of this, um, Arizona had roughly one in 15 cases, about 8% of its, its cases were breakthrough cases. Now, as of today, we just pulled the figure and it is about one in seven. Uh-huh. So the incidence of breakthrough cases in Arizona has just about doubled over the past month. And that would be expected as those people who got vaccinated lose the uh, lose the uh, immunity that they had from vaccination. Uh, there are other Israeli studies that are indicating that the uh, getting uh, infected with SARS-CoV-2 doesn't mean necessarily that you get COVID, but you develop antibodies. And that the antibodies developed from the natural infection look almost the same as the antibodies that are developed from having the um, vaccinations. I would also like to say, though, that even though we're seeing a something of a resurgence here in Arizona of, of COVID cases, we are still not consequentially seeing a lot of the, the, the bad effects we were seeing earlier in the pandemic. So, for instance, deaths per day currently are standing at about uh, two dozen per day, um, which is about twice as much as, as sort of the lowest level they've been this summer. But that is about a an eighth a seventh or an eighth of where they were in January. So in January, they were at, at the height 177 a day. Now they're about 25. So what you're seeing is that it is likely that the vaccines have reduced the bad outcomes for those people who are getting COVID-19. Yes, some people would say, no, no, no. If you look at the data, if you've been vaccinated and get COVID-19, you're more likely to have a bad outcome. The answer is it's because you're also much more likely to be elderly. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the the reality is when you look at Arizona's vaccination rate, 65 and over, it's almost 90 percent. What surprised me was 35 to 44 is it's almost 60 percent. So the, the folks who are unvaccinated are below 20 and the 20 to 34 demographic is about half. Uh, so the, the likely spread is through younger people. That's also why we have uh, less bad outcomes. And the reality is, looking at hospitalization, if you believe, as I do, that the entire reason we needed to take extreme steps with this disease in particular was that we didn't want to overwhelm the hospital systems and cause more death than we needed to. That is to say that if we could treat people as they as they fell ill and treat them appropriately, we would not have more deaths than otherwise uh, 
one reason this disease is having a greater immediate impact in death is because it's new. It's novel. That's the whole point. So when the novel viruses that were the flu virus in the early uh, 1900s uh, occurred, we had a much higher rate of death. Over time, we've all developed some immunity to those kinds of things, and I expect the same outcome with COVID. Yes, it's going to keep mutating, but so does the flu. The other, by the way, on that point, I should also say that the parallel track is that we should expect that the longer we go through this and the longer we have COVID in our world, it is likely that it will get less and less lethal as time goes on. Simply because it's a biological of, matter. Simply because of selective pressure. Because yeah. the the people that survive pass it on. Subsequently, the people that die fail to pass it on. So this selects for less deadly variants over time. Um, thank you for that. Let me make a crude political point about a third topic here, <coughs> which is my political objectives uh, for the rest of the year. I have one. I have one. And it's to elect Larry Elder, governor of California. It's a, a noble goal. It's a fascinating objective. I don't know that you or I or Lewis can do that, but certainly the voters of California can do that. We can help. If you go to electelder.com and send him as much or as little as you can, we can help. Well, one of the things we could do is talk about the fact that he's being attacked in California by the likes of the Los Angeles Times uh, with a headline from a columnist, Larry Elder is the black face of white supremacy. Beautiful. That's the kind of attack that's going on from a supposed informed newspaper with a columnist who spends her time uh, using phrases like um, whitewash. And that uh, Larry Elder blindlessly cherry picks facts. He's one of the most articulate, carefully thoughtful people uh, to run for office. And yet uh, this is the sort of treatment. I see no proof that he has cherry picked a fact. I see no proof that he has invented a fact. Let me let me reserve your further comments on this. The other side of the break. Yes. And rather than any other website you need to think of right now, again, electelder.com. I think this could be an earthquake, not just for California, but for the rest of the country. I'll get the rest of the Hallman's thoughts when we come back. There was a L.A. Times story, uh, not an op-ed, on Larry Elder that uh, quoted the leader of the Black Lives Movement in um, Los Angeles. And uh, it said, I'm going by memory, but I think I have it pretty close to verbatim. Oh, you actually have the article. There we go. We have a name, too. Melina Abdullah, co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. Quote, he is a danger and a clear and present danger to Black Lives Matter. I I texted Larry saying if I lived in California, I'd put up a yard sign quoting that. I'd actually like to (laughs) quote a different piece from that, if I may. Like a lot of black people, though, I've learned uh, that it is often best just to ignore people like Elder. People who are, as my dad used to say, skin folk, but not necessarily kinfolk. The reason that I like Larry Elder is not because he is thoughtful, articulate, and very, very sensible, but because he he makes these otherwise respectable-looking people, these people who think that they are the busybody masters of our society, turn into the most obscene, barking, blood-and-soil racists possible. The reason I would like Larry Elder to win is because he does nothing so much as expose the whinging hypocrisy and absolute bigotry inherent in the Democratic Party's platform and positions that they want to keep minorities subservient rather than advancing their interests. In fact, the greatest uh, charge against him is that uh, black uh, people in Los Angeles can't support him because he doesn't support the policies Mm. that they support. Mm. 
And I just think about the fact that what he's really calling out is, how well has that been working for you? Yeah, I His entire theme has been, folks, we've been getting this same nonsense for 60 years. Why would you want to continue to invest yourself in a Democratic Party that believes that your only feature is to accept welfare and handouts, that they think so little of you that you are not capable of succeeding through your own efforts? That is what I think Larry Elder stands for, and it's driving the uh, leadership of the Democratic Party in California absolutely nuts. It will be their undoing yeah, if he I, can get it. I, I think you're right. I, I mean, I think his election is likely. I don't, I, I don't think it's possible. I think it's likely. And I think especially with the news that we're getting nationally, I think with the lockdowns that California is going to reengage in, and with Newsom looking uh, increasingly angry and embittered, I, Larry is not an angry and embittered guy. He's, uh, he's a positive, you know um, – can-do, smart, articulate human being who I think will create something like a derangement syndrome that DeSantis and Trump only scratched the and surface all, of. All I want is a smart, articulate black man making sense while the CNN editor stands next to him and says, this man is the face of Hitler, just right. so everyone can see how nakedly ideological these people are. Beautiful. Beautiful. Electelder.com. ElectElder.com. Go to bed thinking that phrase. ElectElder.com. And then wake up and do something about it. Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman, thanks for coming in. Love you guys. Love all of you in the audience as well. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth and class is dismissed.